Yesterday we had about uh, 44 people or so, I think it was actually 44 exactly, that came for a vision-setting session here at the church, and it was absolutely wonderful. Those of you who were here, I'm sure were blessed. The results of that vision-setting session have been already tabulated. There is a hard copy that will be available in the Connection Center, a few copies of that, and then we're also sending it out to everybody by email. So if, you're, if you get the church emails and you can just read it off of that, you may want to not take the hard copies, leave those for somebody who won't get that chance, and we'll save some paper, and you'll have a chance to look at that online and have it with you in your uh, devices, computer, whatever. And I think if you go through that, you're going to be blessed as you consider the things that the group talked about with reference to our ministry here and how we might move forward and do some things that need to be done. Thanks to those who participated. Thanks to those who uh, led groups. Uh, thank you to Hope for typing everything up as uh, diligently and as quickly as she did so that we can look at it even as early as today. And uh, I just think this whole event is designed to put us in a great position for ministering for Jesus. And I think it did that. And there'll be, there'll be more discussion. You'll hear more about it in the future as the elders go through the results as well and sort all of that out. One of the things that came up yesterday, by the way, in the vision setting thing was that the people from the first service, and this is, I do it too, we all leave our communion cups in the back of the pews after the first service. And they said, you know what? We should just make sure we get those out. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But let me encourage you as you leave today, look down, grab that communion cup and take it with you. And we'll end up having nobody have to do it later. And there won't be some person in the second service who looks and says, what is the deal with the first service? Okay. <clears throat> it is possible that some of the things that I say today are going to go past you. And you're going to think to yourself, I don't know what he was talking about. How come he's doing this to us? I just want to come and worship God. And instead, I have to listen to all this stuff that I'm not getting it. I just want to be encouraged by some things from the Bible. And I want you to know I get that. But please don't be put off by what we're doing. Give it a chance. I think that our young people especially are going to be blessed by what we do. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you need to, to kind of go through a second run through. And, uh, and that's going to be especially true of the first part of the sermon today, that you might want to listen to it again. The issues of God's existence, which we're looking at this morning, are not necessarily easy, no matter how much we'd like to think that they could be. But they are so hugely significant that we just can't pass over them. And the fact is, you're thinking people, it's likely that some of you have asked the very questions that we're going to be asking during these series during this series, you're going to be asking some of the questions or have asked some of the questions that we're going to deal with today. They've crossed your minds already. And so it's not strange, I don't think, that I would deal with these kinds of things. They certainly are on the minds of our young people, our young adults especially. And we need to, we need to hear the kinds of questions that they're asking and dealing with constantly. I think we owe them that. We have a responsibility as a church to treat issues that are significant for them. And everywhere around them, these kinds of questions are being asked, and so we need to pay attention to that. There are also people everywhere around us who are asking these questions who aren't believers. And as we've seen the last couple of weeks, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we need to be ready to make an answer to those who ask us the reasons for the things that we believe. And so we're going to do some more of that this morning, 
talking about some of the things that become reasons for our belief. But we're also going to look at some challenges. Because here is the fact. The last three or four hundred years have been pretty hard on believers. It has not necessarily been easy to be a Christian in the last three or four hundred years because of things that have been challenged us, things that have come our way. For example, David Hume, famous philosopher from the 1700s, basically he said we cannot accept anything as being real, true, or meaningful that we can't experience through our senses. God cannot be sensed like the natural world, so he does not exist. In other words, we can't begin to prove the existence of God because we can't get beyond our own senses. I have five senses. I can't experience anything beyond them. And if God stands outside of the experience of those five senses, I'm in trouble. And in fact, Hume would say, anything that goes beyond those five senses, we're going to have to conclude simply doesn't exist. Our five senses are there in order for us to grasp realities. And there are no realities beyond what we can sense with those five, those five senses. Well, I think there are some problems with that. We won't get into all the specifics today of David Hume, but there are some problems with that. A second thing. Ever seen this name before? Charles Darwin? Existence, diversity, and variety in biological life can be explained through evolution. And therefore, we don't need God. Now, I'm guessing that some of you in front of me today are, in fact, theistic evolutionists, which means that you recognize that within the biological world, there is progress. Things change. There's no doubt about it. But Darwin's theory caused people to say that all of life can be explained through naturalistic means. Personally, I disagree with that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but we'll get to that in a little while. This is obviously, though, a huge challenge for people today. Sigmund Freud... Maybe you've heard that name. Maybe you've committed some Freudianisms. God is a product of our psychological invention, our psychological needs. Human psychology created the idea of God in order to create for ourselves meaning, purpose, peace, and social structures, and to explain some features of human psychology. So we didn't necessarily manufacture God in the sense of, I think I'll make him up. We manufactured him in the sense that we need him. We need something like this. And we were driven by our own psychological needs to create for ourselves God. So we don't psychologically need God as much as we need to function psychologically well. And we created God in order to do that. There are various social scientists and ethical philosophers who have thought things like this. We don't need God to explain the existence of morals and social structures. Our desire to live causes us to live in harmony and community, which leads us to try and preserve community through ethical harmony, which often functions as love. In other words, in order to continue our life as the human race, we've got to somehow live in harmony and in community with one another. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, let's create something like morals... Structures that allow us to live with one another peaceably, which will be good for society and allow us to continue to live. But then we might say, what would be the foundations for such morals? Which I think is actually a very good question. And so we create God as the source of these kind of morals that allow us to live in harmony and in community. 
And then here's a problem that all of us recognize. We've seen this many times, the problem of evil. God is good and and can control everything. Something bad other than what is good, or sorry, something other than what is good, evil or bad, happens in our world constantly, and perhaps even in an escalating way. There cannot be a good, all-loving, all-powerful God who allows this kind of evil to exist in the way that it does. And the simple reason is because if there was such a God, he would stop it because he's good and he's all powerful and he knows that evil isn't good. And so every time some evil thing was getting ready to happen to someone, God would stop it. In fact, he would stop evil entirely because he's a good God who could do so. And then something like this. This must be the, this might be the toughest one for the morning. Cosmologists... Those who study the universe tell us that they have sufficiently examined the depths of the universe and lo and behold, God is not there. They went on the backside of the moon and he wasn't hiding back there. So he couldn't be there. They also would say that what looks like design and purpose in the natural order can be explained by random events coming together that appear designed and purposeful because cause and effect necessarily occurred throughout the process of the universe's development. And so because our world came about through a series of causes and effects, it always looks like it's designed because it always looks like there's a cause that creates a specific effect. And we say, well, I've got this effect. Where did it come from? It came from a cause. That must all be designed. It all fits together in some kind of system. So this would, they say, happen because of the multi-trillion of possibilities that are out there in our universe. If there's billions and billions and billions and billions of stars, if there are billions of galaxies, then ultimately things are going to have to at some point come together by chance in order to create what we have. And it only has to happen once out of those, all those billion times in order for us to have what we have. Well, we all experience the sun, the starry skies, the realities of our earth and their solar system. We experience the vastness of the universe and can even explore the vastness of the universe in a relatively intimate way these days. But here's the problem. No direct, universal, experiential presence or effect of God can be indisputably shown. In other words, God is not empirically so that's something I can sense with my senses, factual, nor is his existence necessary on any grounds. And so we can look at the vastness of the universe and we just say, God is not necessary in our universe. It could indeed happen all by chance. So when we take all of these challenges, we come up to this kind of conclusion or a question. Is disbelieving in God... The only rational option for someone who thinks well. Because that's what everybody keeps telling us. Does atheism, the idea that there is no God, make the most sense in light of everything, in light of all the challenges that we just looked at, that all these brilliant men and women have come up with throughout history? Does atheism make the most sense in light of all this? Must the brilliant thinking person be an atheist? 
And I think that's what a lot of the world is facing. People are trying to be educated. People don't want to look stupid. They know that all these brilliant people reach the conclusion that there is no God. And we wonder, have we missed something? What is it in our thinking that's haywire? Have we somehow screwed up here? So that this really is the only rational option for thinking people. And of course I would say, no. In fact, I would say that while we cannot prove God's existence, and I'll say that again in a little while, but let me say it again right now, although we cannot prove God's existence, and I really think that's the case, I do also think that the evidence actually stands on the side of the existence of God. So that when I weigh the evidence, I can't look at all the evidence and prove God's existence so that you would say, well, there's no other conclusion that could possibly be reached. I do think, though, that the existence of God answers best the evidence. I would say that there are good reasons. I'd say there are great reasons, in fact, to believe in God. And so for the rest of the time here, I want to just give you some answers that I think are, in fact, compelling. In terms of why, although I can't prove God's existence, when I look at all the evidence out there, it seems to me like God, in fact, answers the evidence the best. Again, some of this might be a little bit difficult, but I think we can sort through this. We're intelligent people. We're thinking people. We ask these kinds of questions. So here are some answers. Reason to believe, number one, the principle of contingency, things are caused. Which is also, if you, if you know anything about these kinds of arguments, it's related to the notion of the cosmological argument. The notion that things exist, why is it that they exist? And here's the point. Nothing exists, or at least I should say nothing begins to exist, without a cause. Things don't begin to exist out of nothing. There must be a first uncaused eternal cause because nothing can begin to exist without a cause. What is then necessary for God to exist is that the universe had to have some kind of beginning. It can't itself be eternal. If the world or the universe is eternal and it doesn't have a cause, then those of us who believe in God are in trouble because the universe stands as that God. But if, in fact, the universe has a beginning, then something must have caused it because nothing can exist or begin to exist, I should say, when it didn't exist. Nothing can all of a sudden begin to exist without some kind of cause. And so if we could show, if people believed that the universe had some kind of beginning, I think there'd be a very strong argument for the existence of God as the creator of that beginning or of that universe. And lo and behold, that's exactly where scientists are going. And I'm not talking so much about philosophers, but scientists are moving in the direction of saying that the universe has a cause, that it didn't always exist, that it had a beginning and therefore must have some kind of cause, even if they don't know what that cause is. I think actually that I do know what that cause is. I think that was revealed to me 
by God. I think he said to me, I'm the one who caused all this. And so it fits perfectly, actually, with the notion that the world or the universe would have a beginning to think God stands as that cause. Now, we've got a film clip here that I'm hoping will make exactly this point. They'll consider the existence of a supreme deity to be either necessary or self-evident or both. And with that, as previously announced, I will be turning the podium over to Mr. Wheaton, who will be presenting his case in favor of a supreme celestial dictator, otherwise known as God. Mr. Wheaton, are you ready? Podium is yours. The stare down from the atheist professor. Um, atheists say that no one can prove the existence of God and, and they're right. But I say no one can disprove that God exists. But uh, the only way to debate this issue is to look at the available evidence, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to put God on trial with Professor Radisson as the prosecutor, me as the defense attorney, and you as the jury. Most cosmologists now agree that the universe began some 13.7 billion years ago in an event known as the Big Bang. So let's look at uh, theoretical physicist and Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg's description of what the Big Bang would have looked like. And since he's an atheist, we can be sure there isn't any uh, believer bias in his description. In the beginning, there was an explosion, and in three minutes, 98% of the matter there is or ever will be was produced. We had a universe. For 2,500 years, most scientists agreed with Aristotle on the idea of a steady-state universe, uh, that the universe has always existed with no beginning and no end. Uh, but the Bible disagreed. In the 1920s, Belgian astronomer George Lemaitre, a theist, was actually also... What's a theist? A theist is someone who believes in the existence of God. He said that the entire universe, jumping into existence in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, out of nothingness in an unimaginably intense flash of light is how he would expect the universe to respond if God were to actually utter the command in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. In other words, the origin of the universe unfolded exactly how one would expect after reading Genesis. And for 2,500 years, the Bible had it right and science had it wrong. All of which points to a God that created it. You see, in, in the real world, we never see things jumping into existence out of nothingness. But atheists want to make one small exception to this rule. Namely, the universe and everything in it. I like that. Now, I have to admit, 20 years ago or whatever, when I was just learning maybe about the Big Bang, or 30 years ago, whatever it was, I thought to myself, there's got to be this huge conflict between the Big Bang theory in terms of the origins of things and my belief in God. I'm not convinced of that now. I actually think that the origin of the universe in some kind of big bang fits very well with the description of God creating things. In fact, it makes perfect sense to me that there would be some kind of cause who would then bring everything into existence and do it with incredible power, with amazing power. 
And that's exactly how those who are scientists describe the Big Bang. Now, he said 13.7 billion years ago. I think he missed it by a couple of years. Or I don't know. My point is, is that we don't know exactly. It may be that the scientists are right. I've heard 40 billion years ago. Well, the difference between 40 billion and 13.7 billion, that's a little while. But it doesn't really matter. It wouldn't even matter if the world was created 50,000 years ago. If God creates the world the way that he does, and he's responsible for it, it does so much for my faith to recognize that God is, in fact, the one who creates our universe, our world, which means that the universe is not eternal. It does start with some kind of cause. And what is the cause from which it starts? So as scientists talk about the world expanding or the universe expanding, either it's in motion and expanding and is someday going to stop expanding or it's eternal. But you don't have a world that is both eternal and expanding but someday going to stop expanding. And if the motion of the universe didn't come to be on its own, then somehow... Things had to be put in motion by someone or something. Things at rest, we all say, based on physical laws, don't go into motion unless something moves them. There has to be a cause for such motion. And if the motion of the universe is in existence, if it really is happening, then somehow there must be a cause for that motion. And I think, again, that that fits perfectly with the notion of Big Bang. And what God has done. So I have no trouble with the Big Bang as a theory for origins. It seems to me like it fits extremely well with who God is and, in fact, what He did. So, another reason besides what's happening with cosmology would be what I would call, what others have called, the moral argument. That morality really does have to have some kind of foundation in order for there to be morality at all. I would say that without an ultimate reason, without some kind of ultimate moral basis beyond natural existence, that morality itself doesn't have any foundation. So even if we want to postulate and say, well, the reason that we have morality is so that we can all live in community, I'm trying to figure out exactly why community should be important to me. And if we say, well, we're going to have communities so that we can all live and we can have the best life possible, well, why should that be of interest to me? I'm not sure that as a random organism that I should have any notion of life is important and others should be valued by me, and so I'm hopeful that their lives can be meaningful. And ultimately, I would say that there isn't, in fact, a basis for morality unless somehow some foundation supplies that basis for morality. And so moral concerns are universally recognized by human beings as important, maybe even necessary. But if we're just matter, if we're only natural, with no moral guide pushing us to be moral, why should I be moral? Why should I wish for your best? Why, in fact, are I not mad at you for stealing my food? You keep taking food away from me that could potentially be used by me. And you might say, well, it could also be used by your family or your children, but why should I care about them anyway? And so I'm not really interested in any of that. I'm very interested in you not taking my food, thank you. And because I have no moral values, I think I might as well kill you all so that I can make sure that indeed you don't take all my food. And right now we're going through this 
economic crisis with the oil and all that kind of thing. Why don't I kill you all so that I can just make sure that all the oil is mine and I can stay warm and I really don't care about you? Well, we make those kinds of choices because there is, in fact, I think, a foundation that makes me different than that. I know this sounds a bit challenging for us to say, but I've never understood why if there is no moral foundation, all the men don't run around raping all the women all the time. Like, what would be the reason for making the choice not to? Only, I think, can that choice be made if there's some foundation for that choice. And I don't think the idea that we're all going to live happily in community because we all love for life to be preserved is a solid enough foundation. I think that God, however, is. And he begins to explain exactly why there is morality across the board in the world everywhere throughout history. Thirdly, there seems to be purpose for life and for what exists. Philosophers have forever asked the question, is there meaning to life? And what is the meaning? And the fact is, if I was to go to you and say, do you want your life to be meaningful? You would all say yes. There isn't anybody here who doesn't like it when somebody else says to them, you know, you did something of value in my life. You did something of value in our organization. You did something of value for my family. You did something that I recognize was a good thing. All of us, when we hear that, we're all encouraged. We all want to have purpose. We want people to think we are of value. Why? If we're just natural organisms, then it doesn't matter whether or not you have value. I don't even know what value means. What does purpose mean in a universe that's absolutely random, that comes from absolutely natural sources, that has no purpose, it's not going anywhere? There's no value or purpose to that. And yet philosophers recognize that indeed there is purpose even within our existence. They, they will talk about how the universe has purpose within itself. It's heading towards some kind of end even. How can that be? And why should that matter if there's ultimately no purpose for life? Human beings seem to be made with a desire for purpose. Purpose seems to be part of the universe's makeup in so many ways, and yet if there's no purpose that stands behind it, if it's all just natural, then it indeed is purposeless at every level. You know, last week I just briefly mentioned the word nihilism. There's a philosophy that accepts all of what the philosophers say about the world being meaningless, and it, it just says all of life is meaningless. And you know what happens to nihilistic philosophers who think that all of life is meaningless? They end up killing themselves. Why would you not? I'm moving on. Existence. There's a lot of things that are unexplainable in life. I can't explain that. Existence does not appear to be random. And I would say that this is the case. In fact, P. 
people have for years talked about design and there being design in our universe. That it appears as though there is a mind that created things. There seems to be rationality. There seems to be order. Things fit together in a reasonable way. In fact, we would say in a beautiful way. As if a great, beautiful mind created it all and set it all in order. And so there is system. We call our system of planets the solar system. And it's amazing the way that everything fits together within that system so that we don't spin off into the universe somewhere. Like, do you realize what would happen to us if the earth was tilted just like a a tenth of a degree off of where it is now? Do you realize what would happen if the earth changed its, its either its direction or its speed or anything with its rotation on its axis? What would happen to us if the earth suddenly changed its motion around the sun in just an infinitesimal amount? We'd all be in trouble. We'd all be dead. We would, at that point, have no concerns about whether or not there's a God. There'd be no purpose. There'd be no reason. There'd be no morality, no nothing. But instead, we seem to have a design and a mind behind that design that has constructed it perfectly for us. The scientists would say, well, it's, that's just a, a random product of there being millions and billions and billions of stars and planets. It had to work out at some point. And I would say, given the notion that all things, if they come into existence, can only come into existence because of a cause, then it just makes sense to me that it's indeed a designer who has brought these things into existence. And then what about something like this? The existence of love is the driving force for what it means to be human. This is where people tend to go right now uh, in terms of their philosophies of life and everybody thinks that there's this source of love that stands behind everything else. Well, I, I actually believe that. I do think that there's a source of love that stands behind everything else. It does seem to be the driving force for what it means to be human. My question is, where did it come from? What is it? How do we define it? Can there really be love without someone who is first a lover and puts love in motion? Can love come from absolutely natural forces and sources? Like if there was a massive bang, whatever billion years we want to say ago, or 50,000 years ago for that matter, it doesn't matter when the Big Bang occurred, if there was a Big Bang and it was absolutely natural, how did the Big Bang with all those natural forces turn into love? How can we as merely natural Phenomena, love. I think that's a good question. I think God is the source of that love. Number six, the claims made concerning others' experiences of God. I've got, I don't know, 130 people in front of me right now. A good number of you would say that you have had experiences of God. I don't think I can ignore that. And then when you multiply that by the hundreds and thousands of churches and then throughout history, all the millions of people in all cultures, in every walk of life who make claims about experiencing something of God, I simply can't ignore that testimony. And then I read in the Bible, the Jews testify to the fact that God came and he did things in their history. 
And they had people who testified about him doing things in their history. We read our New Testaments and we see where Paul talks about how he was walking down a road one day and all of a sudden he sees a bright light and God appears to him and it completely changes everything about his life. And he was on his way to go kill Jews who had given themselves to Jesus and instead he becomes one of them. How did that happen? It happened because of his experience. The apostles had every reason not to believe in Jesus after he was crucified. What in the world turned them around from those who had, say, who had said things like, and we had hoped that he was the Messiah, to believing absolutely that he is Messiah to the point where they actually give themselves up in their own deaths as a testimony to who and what he is? How did that turnaround take place? Why did they do that? Well, it's because they experienced something and they testified to something that God has done. And I believe that testimony. We believe testimony like this all the time. People tell me that there was a guy who got on a ship once in Norway, came across the ocean on that ship and landed somewhere on the east coast of Canada. I don't know, in a thousand or something like that. What in the world? I didn't experience that. I wasn't there. Why is it that I believe that? I've never seen one of those ships. I have no evidence at all in my life that one of those ships existed or that Leif Erikson was ever a person. I believe it only on testimony. I believe some things about Jesus as a result of some eyewitness testimony, and I don't think it's much different in terms of what it is and what it does in my life. It's testimony, and I believe it. It forms my perspective. I become different because I read that information and come to believe it. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, Did you hear that? Many have attempted to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Why does he write those things? He says that because he's doing a careful search, examining the testimonies, the eyewitness testimonies that have been offered to him about what God has done. He was being careful in his search. And isn't that what we expect them to do? And then when they report on it, then we say, well, he couldn't possibly have been telling the truth. Of course he was telling the truth. He was giving evidence of the things that he'd witnessed, the things that he'd seen. He was building his opinions upon solid investigation of truths that he'd come to believe. Number seven, our own individual experiences, and this is where we'll end today. There's probably 95% of us here that if I said to you, tell me about your experience of God you would have something to say. You would say, I have known him. He has worked in my life. 
He has done something. And I trust my own experience here that it was authentic and real, that it changed everything for me. We would say that. And we would be right in line with all of the other millions and millions of people in the history of humankind for about the last 2,000 years who've said, we have had this experience. We know him. And so I think that our experience is another incredibly valid way of us coming to know who he is and believe and trust in him. Now the fact is, like I said, I can't prove it. But I'm kind of thankful for that. Steve Butel, after my sermon last week, asked me why God doesn't show himself in a way that we cannot miss. Why doesn't he prove himself so that we can all easily believe? And I was glad that I was able to answer him. I said, Steve, the problem with this is that we can, if we see God, if he's provable to us, if it's that evident, then everybody's going to believe. And the moment that everybody believes based on proof, which they can't deny, all of a sudden, the cause of my relationship with him turns from faith and love and devotion to something I have to do because I can't dispute it. And so God proves himself to me. If that's the case, every reasonable person is simply going to have to say, indeed, God exists. And God wants more. He doesn't want us to just have to admit that he exists. He wants us to love him. He wants us to be devoted to him. And so he gives us all kinds of evidence that makes me think he exists. And then he says, now I want you to make a choice. Do you believe me? Do you believe I exist? If he proves himself to me, got nothing to admit. I don't have a choice to make. But at the moment that he offers me that real choice, I can make a choice to believe in him or not. He wants us to believe. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that you would bless us with faith. Bless us with belief. Help us to be ready to give an answer to those who would ask us to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Help us to trust you. To, to do so not unintelligently, to do so in light of some evidence, in light of some testimony, in light of your own revelation that you've offered to us. Help us to believe in light of all of that. But help us to believe. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.